Chapter Twenty Four of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. The Merchant of Venice. This is a play that, in spite of the change of manners and of prejudices, still holds undisputed possession of the stage. Shakespeare's malignant has outlived Mr. Cumberland's benevolent Jew. In proportion as Shylock has ceased to be a popular bugbear, baited with a rabble's curse, he becomes a half-favorite with the philosophical part of the audience, who are disposed to think that Jewish revenge is at least as good as Christian injuries. Shylock is a good hater, a man no less sinned against than sinning. If he carries his revenge too far, yet he has strong grounds for the lodged hate he bears Antonio, which he explains with equal force of eloquence and reason. He seems the depositary of the vengeance of his race, and though the long habit of brooding over daily insults and injuries has crusted over his temper with inveterate misanthropy and hardened him against the contempt of mankind, this adds but little to the triumphant pretensions of his enemies. There is a strong, quick, and deep sense of justice mixed up with the gall and bitterness of his resentment. The constant apprehension of being burnt alive, plundered, banished, reviled, and trampled on, might be supposed to sour the most forbearing nature, and to take something from that milk of human kindness, with which his persecutors contemplated his indignities. The desire of revenge is almost inseparable from the sense of wrong, and we can hardly help sympathizing with the proud spirit hid beneath his Jewish gabardine, stung to madness by repeated undeserved provocations, and laboring to throw off the load of obloquy and oppression heaped upon him and all his tribe by one desperate act of lawful revenge, till the ferociousness of the means by which he is to execute his purpose, and the pertinacity with which he adheres to it, turn us against him. But even at last, when disappointed of the sanguinary revenge with which he had glutted his hopes, and exposed to beggary and contempt by the letter of the law on which he had insisted with so little remorse, we pity him, and think him hardly dealt with by his judges. In all his answers and retorts upon his adversaries, he has the best not only of the argument, but of the question, reasoning on their own principle and practice. They are so far from allowing of any measure of equal dealing, of common justice or humanity, between themselves and the Jew, that even when they come to ask a favor of him, and Shylock reminds them that on such a day they spit upon him, another spurned him, another called him dog, and for these courtesies request he'll lend them so much monies, Antonio, his old enemy, instead of any acknowledgment of the shrewdness and justice of his remonstrance, which would have been preposterous in a respectable Catholic merchant in those times, threatens him with a repetition of the same treatment. I am as like to call thee so again, to spit on thee again, to spurn thee too. After this, the appeal to the Jews' mercy, as if there were any common principle of right and wrong between them, is the rankest hypocrisy, 
or the blindest prejudice, and the Jew's answer to one of Antonio's friends, who asked him what his pound of forfeit flesh is good for, is irresistible. To bait fish withal, if it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me, and hindered me of half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I'm a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer that a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you and the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, why should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? The villainy you teach me, I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. The whole of the trial scene, both before and after the entrance of Portia, is a masterpiece of dramatic skill. The legal acuteness, the passionate declamations, the sound maxims of jurisprudence, the wit and irony interspersed in it, the fluctuations of hope and fear in the different persons, and the completeness and suddenness of the catastrophe cannot be surpassed. Shylock, who is his own counsel, defends himself well, and is triumphant on all the general topics that are urged against him, and only fails through a legal flaw. Take the following as an instance. Shylock. What judgment shall I dread doing no wrong? You have among you many a purchased slave, which, like your asses and your dogs and mules, you use in abject and in slavish part, because you bought them. Shall I say to you, let them be free, marry them to your heirs? Why sweat they under burdens? Let their beds be made as soft as yours, and let their pallets be seasoned with such viands. You will answer, the slaves are ours. So do I answer you. The pound of flesh which I demand of him is dearly bought, is mine, and I will have it. If you deny me, fie upon your law. There is no force in the decree of Venice. I stand for judgment. Answer, shall I have it? The keenness of his revenge awakes all his faculties, and he beats back all opposition to his purpose, whether grave or gay, whether of wit or argument, with an equal degree of earnestness and self-possession. His characters displayed as distinctly in other less prominent parts of the play, and we may collect from a few sentences the history of his life, his descent and origin, his thrift and domestic economy, his affection for his daughter whom he loves next to his wealth, his courtship, and his first present to Leah, his wife. I would not have parted with it, the ring which he first gave her, for a wilderness of monkeys, 
what a fine hebraism is implied in this expression portia is not a very great favorite with us neither are we in love with her maid nerissa portia has a certain degree of affectation and pedantry about her which is very unusual in shakespeare's women but which perhaps was a proper qualification for the office of a civil doctor which she undertakes and executes so successfully the speech about mercy is very well but there are a thousand finer ones in shakespeare we did not admire the scene of the caskets and object entirely to the black prince marocius we should like jessica better if she had not deceived and robbed her father and lorenzo if he had not married a jewess though he thinks he has a right to wrong a jew the dialogue between this newly married couple by moonlight beginning on such a night etc is a collection of classical elegancies launcelot the jew's man is an honest fellow the dilemma in which he describes himself placed between his conscience and the fiend the one of which advises him to run away from his master's service and the other to stay in it is exquisitely humorous gratiano is a very admirable subordinate character he is the jester of the peace yet one speech of his in his own defence contains a whole volume of wisdom antonio i hold the world but as the world gratiano a stage where every one must play his part and mine a sad one gratiano let me play the fool with mirth and laughter let old wrinkles come and let my liver rather heat with wine than my heart cool with mortifying groans why should a man whose blood is warm within sit like his grandsire cut in alabaster sleep when he wakes and creep into the jaundice by being peevish i tell thee what antonio i love thee and it is my love that speaks there are a sort of men whose visages do cream and mantle like a standing pond and do a woeful stillness entertain with purpose to be dressed in an opinion of wisdom gravity profound conceit as who should say i am sir oracle and when i ope my lips let no dog bark no my antonio i do know of these that therefore are only are reputed wise for saying nothing who i am very sure if they should speak would almost damn those ears which hearing them would call their brothers fools i'll tell thee more of this another time but fish not with this melancholy bait for this fool's gudgeon this opinion gratiano's speech on the philosophy of love and the effect of habit in taking off the force of passion is as full of spirit and good sense the graceful winding up of this play in the fifth act after the tragic business is dispatched is one of the happiest instances of shakespeare's knowledge of the principles of the drama we do not mean the pretended quarrel between portia and nerissa and their husbands about the rings which is amusing enough but the conversation just before and after the return of portia to her own house beginning how sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank and ending peace how the moon sleeps within dominion and would not be awake there is a number of beautiful thoughts crowded into that short space and linked together by the most natural transitions when we first went to see mr keene and shylock we expected to see 
what we had been used to see a decrepit old man bent with age and ugly with mental deformity grinning with deadly malice with the venom of his heart congealed in the expression of his countenance sullen morose gloomy inflexible brooding over one idea that of his hatred and fixed on one unalterable purpose that of his revenge we were disappointed because we had taken our idea from other actors not from the play there is no proof there that shylock is old but a single line masonic and old shylock both stand forth which does not imply that he is infirm with age and the circumstance that he has a daughter marriageable which does not imply that he is old at all it would be too much to say that his body should be made crooked and deformed to answer to his mind which is bowed down and warped with prejudices and passion that he has but one idea it is not true he has more ideas than any other person in the piece and if he is intense and inveterate in the pursuit of his purpose he shows the utmost elasticity vigor and presence of mind in the means of attaining it but so rooted was our habitual impression of the part from seeing it caricatured in the representation that it was only from a careful perusal of the play itself that we saw our error the stage is not in general the best place to study our author's characters in it is too often filled with traditional commonplace conceptions of the part handed down from sire to son and suited to the taste of the great vulgar and the small tis an unweeded garden things rank and gross do merely gender in it if a man of genius comes once in an age to clear away the rubbish to make it fruitful and wholesome they cry tis a bad school it may be like nature it may be like shakespeare but it is not like us admirable critics end of the merchant of venice